Happy Dad's Day. You're welcome. Uh, before I move on, I just want to say, too, we just didn't have all of her stats and what she won or on where she placed, but my girl Lisa Wade is out there and who also competed in Special Olympics this last week. And so just wave at everybody, Lisa. We just want to congratulate you for all of your efforts. 50 years old out there running around like she's 18. I love it. So working hard and competing and everything. So great job. I uh, want to just, you know, mention to you that this is Advanced Sunday, and we probably met, met, uh, mentioned that a little bit earlier, but Advanced Sunday for us, every third Sunday of the month, we try to abbreviate what we do here in our worship service, so my goal will be to, to finish in about 30 minutes and dismiss men out to the hub, ask the ladies to stay in the comforts of the sanctuary so that we can challenge each group um, uniquely. And uh, I just want to thank Jeff and Michelle for all of their efforts. Um, Jeff, for the last several years that we've been doing the advance, and Michelle, uh, more recently, for all the work. I mean, these guys really wrestle with what to present to us. And I think it shows. I think the content that comes forward is very applicable and very helpful to us. In particular, Jeff's got a message today for the men that's near and dear to my heart because it's Middle Earthy. So we're pretty excited about that. So make sure I get a front row seat out in the hub when we dismiss the guys out there. Um, but, but dads, um, the, the message this morning isn't specifically to dads, but I think it's very poignant to think about the change that happens when a dad gets his heart wrapped around the things of Christ. Because our privilege here at Faith, um, the pastors, the other staff, we're, our privilege is to, to do what I often refer to as have a, a front row seat to the work that God's doing. So often we get to witness what's going on in your lives and to see the changes that are made. And I, and, I, and I think so often when we see change happen in the heart of a dad, a heart of a husband, and that change begins to happen, more often than not, what we see is the family respond to that in such positive ways. Because in a lot of ways, dad can be sort of that stopping point of like that bottleneck of, uh, you know, the Lord just really wants to do great things through that family. And so often it has to run through dad. And so because of that, the pressure is on us, dads, to stay submissive to the will of the Lord so that we are creating in our family environments an opportunity for all of its members to flourish under what the Lord would have us do. But the pressure on us, too, is the fact that if we don't do that, then we often are the catalyst for a lot of stagnation in our families. Now, that doesn't mean that when dads aren't here or they're not growing in the Lord, that the family is lost and hopeless because the Lord's grace is bigger than any one person can be a hindrance. And so the Lord, despite the, the, uh, the opportunity or despite the inactivity, I should say, still does great things through families and kudos to you moms and wives who are pressing forward anyway. But I was privileged to see a change happen in a man uh, growing up that that was very shy. I've shared with you all before the story of my dad, so I won't go into a lot of details, but I know that my mom, who is a rock star mom, she is just always graceful, always just diligent, and, and she's, she's an angel. She's perfect, and, and we all think that about her. And it was so, was so much work for her to raise us in church for a long time because my dad wasn't playing ball. 
He wasn't in agreement with it. He wasn't endorsing it. He was, he was like one of us. He was kind of being told he had to go in a sense and she wasn't really talking down to him, but it was, he acted a little bit like he was being dragged. And so to see the Lord get a hold of my dad's heart through difficult circumstances and him become the leader in our family, everything just started clicking like, okay, so we're doing this together, huh? So not just from personal experience, but from what we've seen, but also what we believe the Lord clearly addresses in his word and the difference in the roles of, of moms and dads and husbands and wives. We believe that when God gets a heart, uh, gets a hold of the heart of dad, things start to just exponentially pick up in the home. And so guys, if you're looking at the overall tenor of your family life and you're going, ah, something's wrong and everything, put that responsibility back on you. How do I make these changes? Well, it's not my department. Love is really her area and all this. I do provision. She does love. Understand this, that the way that the scriptures have set up the role of husbands, wives, moms, and dads is that you and I men are responsible for the, for the tone, for the, for the atmosphere of love in our house. Even if we hate Hallmark movies, amen, brothers? That's not what we're getting at. What we're getting at is you being a, 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 a place where that, the love of Christ flows through. You don't have to be the best Bible student in your house. You don't have to be the, um, the, the, the greatest, um, servant or any of those things when it comes to the church activities and all that kind of stuff. But it, it's, you're first to sacrifice your life for those around you. And that, men, is how we lead in the house. And so we've been, to get back to my point, we've been very privileged to see change take place in a lot of families throughout the years at Faith. And I have dear friends whose sons now will grow up and say to them, my life changed because I saw the change in my dad. And so we know those names, we know those faces, we know that that's possible. So it allows me to transition a little bit to a few fundamental questions. And I'm going to throw them out there. We're going to sort of quickly move through some of the answers to them and make sure that we, we get out of here on time, but get out of here with something to apply and, and something to put into action. The first of my three questions is this, do we need to change? That might seem like a no-brainer. We're in church. I'm preaching to the choir. I might go, yeah, of course we need to change. Can't stay the same that we used to be. And Christ died for more than that. And we, we get all that. But the reality is, is that the philosophy out there, the they, them, and those, the philosophy is, yeah, society needs to change, but it needs to change based on the temperature that we've put on it for the time. We believe that society needs to look like this. So you, archaic ones, need to change into this. And then once that change morphs, then we're going to change our definition and you need to change along with that. And wherever we put that moving target, we all need to be willing to change. The problem with that whole philosophy is that the individual is in charge of where that target should be. What do we need to change? And how fickle are we? How often do we change our mind as to what we like, what we don't like, what's important for us now versus what was important to us 10 years ago? Can we really be trusted with telling all of society, we as individuals, be, be trusted telling all of society what they need to change and do? So the answer, the quick answer to our question, do we need to change really is, is yes, we do. The scripture is going to prove that for us, but we can't be the, the interpreters. We can't be the assigners of what that change needs to look like. That belongs to someone who doesn't change. So do we need to change? 
I believe the answer is yes. So if so, is change even possible? And you might say, well, of course it is. You know, you just said that a lot of people have changed and that's true. But think about your day to day. Think about the people that are in your life. Think about how you, you yourself become discouraged and go, I'm really not much different than I am, than I was when I started this whole journey. I can't seem to get over my stuff any better today than I used to then. So we start to doubt whether or not change is possible because it hasn't shown up in our life or in the life lives of the people that that we care about so it's important to pause and say instead of just throwing out the sunday school answer of like yep change is possible god can make it happen we need to look in the mirror and say well if it is possible then why isn't it happening here so if change is possible then my third question is how does it take place how does it happen so we need to search the scriptures to find out some of the answers to these questions. It's no doubt. It's probably the, one of the biggest overstatements in the world that we are in an information age. The reason why Google is in business is because we need to know stuff and we need to know stuff now. A funny thing happens to us though, that when we find the answers we're looking for, we have to run it through a grid. Do we agree with it? Does it go down? Well, or are we going to reject it? Even if it happens to be right, we're going to reject it because it disagrees with what I wanted to hear. Right? So if you can Google the answers to life, you have that decision of what pulls up on the screen. Are you going to say, okay, that must be the answer. I'm going to move forward with it. Or I don't really like that. I'm not up to that today because we as people can be very subjective. So the information age evidences for us a real craving for knowledge. But the problem that happens is when that knowledge arrives, does it wrestle with our desire to stay free and autonomous? Don't introduce authority into my life. I have no time for it. I'm just trying to figure out my own deal. I don't have time for someone else telling me how to do things. And we live in a post-Christian society, which is something we talk about often here, which means that if we go out there and say, well, God said this is true, so you should do it. Just because that works for us, they go, yeah, so prove it. I, I, I don't believe that at all. Well, God said this. Well, yeah, but who's God really? I mean, so a society out there is unimpressed. It doesn't mean it makes it less true. It just means it's not hitting home like it used to. So we have to do better than just quoting the things you and I are settled on. And we certainly have to do better than just quoting the things we're settling on, uh, we're set on, and then it not show up in our life anyway. We have to make sure that the things we're willing to stick our necks out and say we believe shows up in our life. And I believe that all of us share a moment in time, a space in our hearts or or to use the overused phrase, the end of the day factor there where we get in the quietness of who we are and we evaluate whether something is missing or whether we are complete. And I would not venture to guess that 100% of us in this room enjoy that quiet moment and go, you know what? The Lord has given me everything I need. It is well with my soul. Whatever he has coming down the pike is good for me. So I'm just surrendering to it. I'm in the flow of him. How, how many of us would love to be able to say that? And yet so often in that quiet moment, in that, in that soul searching time, we just go, what is missing? I say, I believe this, but it doesn't show up this way. What am I supposed to do with this? I'm going to loosely quote, mostly just garner some philosophy here from Gandhi who most of us would say, I don't know, I'm not following Gandhi, but just listen to this and tell me how much of this shows up in our world around us, shows up in our search engines, how much of this, these answers show up in our conversations at the water cooler, if companies still have that 
Now it's all bottled water, right? In mini fridges at your desk. Uh, but where do these conversations happen in our family gatherings and stuff? Here's what Gandhi would say. The answer to life is he'd say the crying need of our times is the conversion. And I love the fact that that word's being used because we're going to talk about this differently. The conversion of self purification and self realization. So maybe Gandhi's name's not put on this every time we hear this, but the the philosophy, the worldly wisdom out there says, if you just get to that gooey center of who you are and you find out what's going on in there and you just get and you embrace that, you take it for all that it is and you settle in your heart. I'm just going to be okay with me. Then now you're on the path to true happiness, true contentment. So in other words, he would say, and many others that parrot him, that if you just embrace you and just get over it already, just accept this is who you are and be okay with it and be the best version of you you could be, somehow you're supposed to find peace in that. I believe the Bible would challenge that notion quite severely. The reason why we're talking about all this is because we need to understand as far as, as we pursue what makes a church healthy, and we've been doing a series of these messages now for just a, a short time, that one of the things that we need to really understand as a church, and this isn't just amongst the leadership, but this is its people that, that call faith their home, that we have to understand what truly happens at conversion. It's getting really murky in churches and, and out there and everything as to what makes a Christian a Christian? What makes a, a person a, a churchgoer? Why do they go to church? Why does church exist and everything? So we believe that understanding how people truly change and the need to change is where God starts bringing health to the organization that starts bringing longevity to the church because we're doing what the gospels called us to do. Here's the problem with Gandhi's philosophy. Here's the problem with us chasing down what's in the middle of us and then just embracing whatever we find. Jeremiah 17, nine says this, the heart is more deceitful than all else. So pause there for a second. So if there's deceit, it means it wants to be hidden. If there's deceit, it means it doesn't want the truth of itself to be found. So you might go down this journey enough and go, I like what I'm finding for a time. Jeremiah says the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Sorry, Gandhi, it's not possible. What you start to crack open as you get into the in, inner you, and this is going to be the most encouraging thought of the day that you've ever heard. When you get to the inner you, what you find is infection and disease and disgust. And you find all of this living at the core of man. Wow. This is fun, isn't it? Isn't church so uplifting? You get to the center, that gooey center of you, and what you find is it's as hard as a rock, prickly. It's got thorns. It's all kinds of nastiness and mess. This is what the word of God tells us, regardless of what our feelings and wanting to chase those down are telling us. The truth of the matter is what you find is not something you enjoy. The problem isn't that I'm not in touch with the real me. The problem is the real me. It's important for us to sometimes hold they, them, and those up to their own standards. Everyone wants to tell you where to find liberation. Everyone wants to tell you the path to real peace, but then ask them, so how is that working for you? Because again, the roadmap to the, to the philosophy of the world is keep going inward, inward, and inward. And just ask them, are you okay with what you're finding? Cause I don't seem to be, how did you become okay with what you're finding? 
Because the reality is the world always has a tell. The the world always has to eventually reveal its cards. And what we see is more chaos, more brokenness, more everything. And it's not for a lack of encouragement. It's not a lack for t-shirts and bumper stickers. It's not a lack of of more of uh, Eastern philosophy and all these kinds of things. It's everywhere. It still isn't holding up. How liberating has the journey towards the center of our hearts truly been? Because I think what we're seeing is the reality of God's word coming to, coming to play. The deeper you look, the more disappointed you will be. Ephesians 2.1 uh, punctuates it even heavier and says, And you are dead in your trespasses and sins. These aren't our character flaws. These aren't our personality traits that we were born with. This is the thing that every single human being came into the world with, like a weight on their shoulders, this, this, this heaviness of sin, this infection in their hearts, and it's plaguing them. And the more we pursue the acceptance of that broken core, the emptier we get. We start to relate to terms like debt. We start to realize, I, I can't pay my way out of this hole. I've, I've got such a deep hole I can't get out of. We start to understand terms like slavery. I'm shackled and bound to something I can't free myself from. I don't have the, the power in and of myself to do it. We come to terms with bankruptcy and we go, there's no way that anybody could ever bail me out of this. It's going to be on my record forever. And unfortunately, we also come to terms with things like death because that is our condition. Ephesians is telling us we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It doesn't get any worse than that. So has the Bible answered our question? Is change necessary? Well, if we stay in that state, the Bible tells us, say, I can't, God says, I can't even look on sin, let alone let it into my kingdom. It's, it's, it's a, so far removed from me that in my holiness, I couldn't even take you in. So yes, a change needs to happen before we even find any peace and contentment with the Lord. So that leads us to the second question. Is this possible? And we'll go through this pretty quickly because I think Paul sums it up for us uh, very succinctly in first Corinthians six. He gives us a list of the, of the, uh, this, this is the naughty list. This is the list that isn't going anywhere. This is the lead that's going, the list that's going to stay dead in their trespasses and sins. He says in verse 10, he says, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so his listeners might say, well, yeah, sounds like a bad list. Glad I'm not on it. And Paul says, but such were some of us, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Paul gives us hope with this ugly list by saying, you see all that stuff that we, we'd be tempted to look at our, uh, uh, down our nose and say, you don't belong here because we're clean. He says, look at this list and relate to it because we were on that list before the change came. Before the Lord uh, uh, arrest, uh, arrested and rescued our hearts. And began that change in us. This was us is what Paul is saying. So is change possible? Absolutely. You've seen it too. You've seen it in your life. Maybe you've seen it even more profoundly in some of the other people that are here in this church or in your family or something. We have witnessed such profound change where we go, okay, there's no amount of wise words we could have said in a counseling situation or in a sermon situation that would have produced that. There are times where it's so clearly, so obviously the hand of God that men cannot take credit for it. 
And that's the kind of change that's possible. Paul is saying that's, that was some of that, that those were some of you. Remember we said that Paul started off this journey basically being the one that kills all the holy people, all the people that are compassionate serving Christ. Paul started off as a murderer of those people because he was doing his job as a zealous uh, a follower and faithful man of God. Paul knows this list all too well, all too intimately. Such were some of us, he's saying. But that change is possible. So how does it happen? We're convinced. We get it. We need to change. We know it's possible. So what happens? Well, let's jump another book up with Paul here to the to the Corinthians in Second Corinthians chapter seven. What I find really interesting about this is the applicability to our culture today. How sick are we of hearing politicians and other people in the media say, I'm sorry to those who were offended? Do you understand? Maybe you've you've had this beat up for you, but if you haven't thought about that before, think about the, the smack in the face that that statement is. I'm sorry you were so little to take either my words out of context or you were, had such thin skin that what I said bother you. I'm sorry for any negative emotion it may have caused me that you couldn't handle what I did. It's such an empty apology. It's, it's a sorrow that, that doesn't produce any action. It basically says, so are we good here? Am I off the hook? There's no remorse in it. There's no change. Imagine if our lives operated that way, if that's all we were getting at home. Hey, said, I'm sorry. Don't back the truck of guilt up on me here. But you know, the reality is we do say this, right? I said, I'm sorry. Remember we said before that the philosophy of they, them, and those creeps into the culture of the church. And this is how we're treating our personal relationships. Hey, 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 I said, I'm sorry. And I meant it. You saw that little tear roll down my cheek, right? When we were dealing with this. It hurts me too, you know, we want to be relieved. We want to be let off the hook. So tell me this isn't appropriate to this context. Paul says this. He says, I now rejoice, not that you are made sorrowful, but that you are made sorrowful to the point of repentance for you are made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God does something. He's saying it produces a repentance without regret. Wouldn't it be great to not have regrets for the way that we handle the situation or the way that we changed our, our mistakes of the past or how we move forward from the sins that help, that hold us back as Hebrews tells us. He says this is, this is a, a sorrow according to the will of God and that produces a repentance without regret, which leads to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death because if I'm just sorry for being caught or I'm just sorry for the way it made you feel, I'm going to have this. So we good here mindset. So guess who's getting away with it tomorrow. So the sorrow of the world produces death, the sorrow of the righteous, the sorrow that is appropriate to the will of God produces. What can I do to turn this around? Let me sum it up for you a little bit here theologically. Uh, Wayne Grudem is a great theologian and a, a reputation for just a lovely man and a real humble guy and everything. And, and, I, and I, I have a hard time skipping over these names without calling out my boss because Pastor Bill had most of these people that we quote for teachers and professors. And it's kind of nauseating, really, because... We have lots of their books on our shelves and he loves to come in and just every once in a while, not every day, but probably every Tuesday is it usually, I don't know. And points out, oh, I had him for New Testament. I had him for ethics. I had all these. Yeah, yeah, we get it. The book. And I would say this at membership uh, class sometimes just to show the difference in training here. Um, um, 
and I want the Lord to give me credit for admitting this, um, is, uh, I, there was a book produced from the school I went to too. And it, it was, it's about this thick and it's called accounting for small churches. And the whole takeaway from that book is how to multi, how to, how to use multiple accounts out of one checkbook. It's genius. It's brilliant. It's changed the world. All small churches now are just revolutionized and changed over what this guy wrote. Pastor Bill's seminary books this big all over the place. Yeah, you get what you pay for. Anyway, um, but I left with no debt, but he'd say the same thing too. So it just drives me crazy. But anyway, okay, I'm okay. I'm getting better. Here's what Wayne Grudem says, the writer of the really cool book about repentance. He says, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin. So starting point, we feel bad about it. A renouncing of it, that, that shouldn't be in my life. I agree with you that that is harmful, hurtful. I, I acknowledge it. You don't have to convince me. It's terrible. It's ugly. And a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. You see, where real change starts to take place is when you and I take ownership of our error. We take ownership of our sin and our transgression against the Lord ultimately and against others in our life. And we get on the side of it that says, I see it like you see it. Maybe not to the same consequence, but I agree this is not fitting of me. This isn't something I should keep in my life. So therefore I'm going to push it aside. I'm going to shove it over here and I'm going to do everything I can in the power of the spirit to move away from that behavior, away from that action and distance myself from the thing that's hurt us or in, in the, in the, in the, uh, uh, relationship to the Lord, distance my thing, uh, distance myself from the thing that put you on the cross. And so repentance is putting it down putting our sin down and walking away towards Christ. It's a sincere commitment to forsake it and a walk in obedience to Christ. This isn't just, oh yeah, I feel bad about it too. I'm sorry we had to experience that. It's so much deeper than that. It's more than, uh, repentance is more than just what you and I can think of and say, okay, I, I guess I understand the fundamentals of the gospel. I get it intellectually. So as long as it makes sense to me and I'm not antagonistic to the things of Christ, I might even go to church sometimes. And if you ask me, I might pray before a meal. I get that. It all makes sense. And I kind of keep it all in my place and stuff. But there isn't a lot of change going on there. There isn't a lot of doing the hard work or doing the thing that the Lord's called us to. That mental acceptance is not true repentance. That's why uh, Dr. Grudem sums it up for us as this is a package deal. These things come together. I, I love how it was illustrated in the 19th century famous London preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Many of you have heard of him, but pastors everywhere know about Spurgeon and have read his works and are inspired by them and study them and stuff. Spurgeon as a, as a famous evangelist and saw thousands of people make these commitments to the Lord was walking the streets of London and a, and a man was stumbling drunk, gets in his way and he goes, Hey, I'm one of your converts. I know you. He goes, you must be one of my converts because you're not the Lord's. You see, Spurgeon understood that people can react intellectually. I agree with what that guy's saying, or it moved me in an emotional way. So I'm going to say the words. I'm going to say I'm in the faith. I'm going to say I'm going to follow Jesus. But if I don't, if I don't back it up with any of my actions, I'm just one of the preacher's converts. I'm not the Lord's. And that's what Spurgeon is getting across for us here. Are we true converts of the Lord 
Jesus Christ, more than our own moral resolve, more than just our ability to say, okay, I'm going to live a good life or I'm going to add a little God to my situation or something. But have I really forsaken the sin that hung him on the cross and turned towards him and started walking in obedience? All of our efforts to try to impress others or try to impress God, Isaiah 64 shoots down for us and says, for all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment and all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. If I'm guilty of just making a mental quote unquote conversion and just agreeing with the terms there and saying, oh, I can subscribe to that. Yeah, I'm good. Then what ends up happening is as the, the stuff in my life starts rearing its ugly head and I start getting uncomfortable. I start doubting whether or not I really belong to the Lord because my mental uh, making sense of all of this mentally doesn't hold up because what I'm experiencing is something much heavier than I can wrap my brain around. So a decision only conversion isn't a real conversion at all. It lacks faith. I haven't practiced stepping forward. I haven't practiced sacrificing more of my life over to the Lord. On the other hand, the person that's totally willing to do all the works, they're kind of like, just like, you know, I'm just going to dive in and do all these good things. I'm doing this uh, um, action oriented salvation and they haven't thought through all that God's done for them. They sometimes minimize the work that's going on and they turn into a works only kind of salvation, which is a false conversion too. I need to keep trying to impress God. I need to keep working harder and then he'll be in favor with me. It's never going to happen according to Isaiah 64. Change happens when mental acceptance meets the surrender of the will. I'm going to continue to quote Wayne Grudem here for a second. He says, conversion is a single action. Pause there for a second. It's a single action. It isn't one of these progressive, like I'm going to drop one thing and slowly, gradually move over. He says that conversion is a single action of turning from our sin in repentance and turning to Christ in faith. Now, our experience makes us doubt that that's even possible because we get that pull back to our weight, back to our sin. Why can't I just discard it and be free from it and move on? Well, because we're still walking around in this bag of bones that is infected at our core with sin. And Christ said, I will release you from that weight when you meet me in glory. But while you're on this earth, you have more to learn, more to suffer through, more consequence on this earth for that. But I have released the ultimate and eternal penalty from your sin. So yeah, you're going to carry that weight with you. You're going to drag it. But as you move more towards me, your burden gets lighter. Jesus even said that if you take my workload upon you and learn from me, you will find rest for your souls because the work that I give you is much lighter than the baggage you've been carrying around. So true conversion is the beginning of change. True repentance is the beginning of change. And God does the work. This is the part we can wrap our head around and we can put action to because uh, God changes us at the core of who we are because our infection is worse. The, the deeper into the chewy, warm center we get, the little nougat there. You guys know what nougat is? Nougat's one of the great creations in life. If you don't know nougat, you need to eat some candy bars this afternoon. It's I know, I was just getting ready to land the punch, right? And I'm talking about candy bars. I just need to make sure you're still with me. You get to that warm center, which we think is going to provide us all the the joy and peace and, and understanding. But instead, what we find is infection and thorns and disease and all of this. God says, that's where I show up. That's the part that I rescue. 
And in Ezekiel, through his prophet, he says, I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within them. I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That hard, nasty middle, I'll start massaging. I'll replace it. I'll, I'll remove it. And I'll give them the thing that actually moves and is pliable because now they have a heart after me. So God does that on the inside of us. We say, Lord, you're right. I need to give you my life. I need to receive your payment for my sin. Come in, move in, take over, take control, be Lord of my life. And then the heart starts softening and things start to change. Our thinking begins to change. Paul illustrates this in Philippians 2. He says, have this attitude, which for us would actually be a mental thing. This is thinking. This is a mindset. Make this decision in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus' mindset was, I'm going to uh, put aside all of the worship and the adoration that I so rightly deserve because I'm the King of kings and Lord of lords. I'm going to put that aside to take on the burden of something else. And so this mindset becomes, as God gets a hold of our hearts, we start realizing this life isn't for me. This isn't about me. I don't need to find new ways to make sure I'm happy with my life. I need to find out what's going on somewhere else. And Paul rounds it out for us in verse seven. He says, instead, what Jesus did is he emptied himself. And that is what you think it means. When you feel emptied and spent and drained, I've got no more. Imagine the the son of God saying that he literally gave his all. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. His mindset was... So we also know from the scriptures that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Why? Because he changed his mindset. He was thinking, I am not uh, here to be just flat out worshiped and celebrated all the time. I've come to accomplish a mission for my father. I've come to lay my life down. Scripture says that in due time, God will exalt him. He will receive that worship and he'll receive that adoration because for the moment, for the joy that was set before him, he laid his life down and endured it. So how does real change happen? When you and I open our lives up, open our hardened hearts up to the Lord, he comes in, he starts softening that up. He changes how we think about the things that we see now, the people that we come in contact with. And he says, now, therefore, that you see them differently, find a way to serve them, find a way to lay your life down. And this is what we've been saying to our dads. This is what we've been saying to our husbands. If it starts with you in the house, you don't have to know all the verses. You don't have to know all the theology and stuff. If your wife's better at that than you or something, then so be it. But be the first to lay your life down and others will follow. We believe that. And if they don't, because it's not foolproof, not all 100% of the families that experience this, then it becomes a problem with all the others before God. Because you're no longer the bottleneck. You've now surrendered them to the Lord and said, now, Lord, you do with them what you will. My job is to be here to sacrifice for them. That's where true conversion takes place. That's where real change happens. And that's why we as a church want to stay true to our understanding of what the Bible says about these things. Would you stand and join me? We're going to pray. And then I'm just going to ask everybody to to kind of know your spots and, uh, and, and get there as quickly as possible. And guys, especially please make your way into the hub because we got lots of standing room out there. So make your way into the hub and take seats. You don't worry about it being selfish and like undoing what I just preached about. That's not the point. You're helping us out if you move in. So, so please do that for us. Lord, we thank you God so much for all the blessings that you give us more than we deserve. 
Lord, when we sing a song like It Is Well and we do a catalog of the things in our life that we're not happy with, the things we're not pleased with, pleased with, all we have to do is understand that in you, our eternity is set. So no matter what happens to us in this earth, we're already getting more than we deserve. Lord, because you've given us freedom for our souls and because of that, everything else is well with us. Give us the faith to believe these things. Lord, we can say them. We just want to live it out. We want to practice it. So give us the faith, Lord, to do that. In your name we pray. Amen.